This morning's gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to John, the 12th chapter, verses 23 through 28. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, through these words, read, spoken, and heard, may we meet your living word in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I met my college roommate on our first day as freshmen, she was already full of a sense of purpose. She had already known for years what she was going to do with her life. She was going to be an occupational therapist, and that's still what she's doing today. In contrast, I had chosen my major, physical therapy, without that same sense of purpose. I felt obligated to do something related to science because I was good at it. And my parents wanted me to choose something with a clear career path. And I knew for sure that I did not have the stomach to be a doctor. I lasted exactly one semester in that major. It did not take me long to figure out that even though it was logical, it was not authentic. It wasn't my calling. Seven years and two degrees later, when I finally began social work school, I knew I was finally on the right path, even though I was still unsure exactly where that path led. I was still too afraid to recognize my calling. It took a dear friend's death at the hands of anorexia before I acquiesced to the inner voice that had urged me to use my gifts to help others with eating disorders. This morning we heard the story of another woman who found it just as hard to own her own gifts and her calling. Esther is one of only two women for whom a book of the Bible is named. And yet, she's someone that Christians have had a tendency to overlook. Her story only appears in the lectionary once every three years, this Sunday, and is only one of four possible readings for this week. In fact, I have to confess that I had to go on a bit of an archaeological dig through old seminary textbooks to refresh my memory about her. As it turns out, though, I could have saved myself a lot of time by simply asking any of my Jewish friends and acquaintances, this story that seems a bit esoteric to us is actually part of the fabric of their liturgical year, memorialized in the annual festival of Purim, which is apparently one of the most fun Jewish festivals. 
In addition to reading the Esther story twice, it includes a feast with plenty of adult beverages, special pastries, and costumes for children and children at heart. It also includes giving gifts of money to at least two people who are poor and giving someone at least two different kinds of food. These traditions stem from the biblical instructions of Mordecai, Esther's cousin who had raised her and who became an advisor to the king after the events that we heard about this morning. However, lost in the traditions of Purim is the significance of Esther herself as a brave, faithful, smart, and even cunning woman who also happened to be beautiful. Since we didn't have time to read the whole book this morning, let me set the stage for you. Generations back, ancestors of Esther and Mordecai had been taken from Jerusalem as part of the Babylonian exile. But now Babylon had been defeated by Persia, which allowed greater religious freedom among the exiles. The king is Ahasuerus, who deposes his own queen out of anger after she refuses to come have her beauty shown off at a party. After all, his counselors argued, if such behavior was allowed, then women everywhere might get the idea that they could disobey their husbands. In order to find a new queen, Servants went out and gathered all the young virgins of the kingdom, including Esther, into a harem where they underwent a year of cosmetic treatments before finally being presented one by one before the king. It seems safe to infer that at best, women in that culture were seen as pretty playthings. Lucky Esther was the one chosen from among that harem of virgins to become the queen. Soon, she and Mordecai gained additional favor when Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. However, the king promoted a man named Haman to be his second in command and ordered all in the court to bow down to him. Mordecai refused based on Jewish law and Haman's injured pride led him to retaliate by plotting genocide against the Jews. He manipulated the king by arguing that the Jews obeyed their own laws rather than the king's laws, and by offering to donate a large sum of money to the king's treasury. Unsurprisingly, he got the decree he wanted, ordering every Jewish man, woman, and child to be killed in a single day. The Jews responded with mourning, weeping, and fasting in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther in the palace learned that Mordecai was outside the gate in sackcloth, she sent a servant to find out what had happened. Mordecai sent the servant back with the news and asked Esther to beg the king to spare her people. This is where this morning's reading picks up the story. It was not a simple request. Esther couldn't just speak with the king like a wife might normally speak with her husband. There was a law that anyone who went to the king without being summoned would be put to death, unless he specifically pardoned them by holding out his scepter. 
There was also the complication that on Mordecai's orders, Esther had never told anyone in the palace that she was Jewish. When Esther tries to explain to Mordecai that she is helpless in this situation, his response is rather cutting. He says, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will surely rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. What a lot to pack into four sentences. It is part prophecy, part guilt trick, and also a statement of deep faith. This is the only book in the Bible in which God is not mentioned directly, but God is nonetheless front and center in this statement. Mordecai expresses the certainty that God can and will deliver the Jews from destruction just as God has done so many times before. Esther could play a role in that deliverance, and Mordecai suggests that indeed this may be her calling, but if she won't do it, God will certainly find another way. We aren't privy to the inner anguish Esther must have experienced as she wrestled with the choice before her. But I suspect that many of us know well enough what it feels like to have to choose between a set of bad options. To wish that you could fold the hand of cards you've been dealt and try again with a new hand. To know that not choosing is just another way of choosing one of those bad options. To take a deep breath, to whisper that prayer we all know so well, the one that goes, God help me, and make the best choice you can with the knowledge you have in the moment. I can imagine Esther squaring her shoulders, taking a deep breath, and repeating to herself Mordecai's words, I have become queen for such a time as this. Then committing herself to take action for her people, regardless of the personal cost. That is courage, being afraid and brave at the very same time. We heard how the story ends. Esther goes before the king without an invitation and he spares her life, extending his scepter. Not only that, he goes further, offering to give her whatever she requests even if she wants half of his kingdom. She puts all her cards on the table, acknowledging her Jewish heritage for the first time and asking him to spare the life of the Jewish people living in his kingdom. Haman, who plotted against the Jews, is condemned in their place, and a new decree is issued allowing the Jews to defend themselves against all their enemies on the very day that they would have been massacred, the day that is forever memorialized in the festival of Purim. It reminds me of something that my confirmation mentor used to say way back when. I read the book, and in the end, the good guys win. <laughs> we get to fast forward through the heart-stopping moments when time stands still and the fate of Esther and her people hang in the balance. 
We even get to skip the parts of the story where retribution against the enemies of the Jews becomes messy and distasteful. However, when such watershed moments arrive in our own lives, there's no fast forward button. We don't get to skip ahead to happily ever after. We have to listen to our hearts pounding in our ears as time stands still and everything hangs in the balance. We have to feel all the feelings in real time and we don't have the luxury of wallowing in sackcloth and ashes. We have to have all those feelings and still get up and put on our work clothes and our brave face and go out and put it all on the line. And we don't get to skip over the messy and distasteful bits to get to our happy ending. So I am not that interested in the festival to celebrate the triumph of God's people. I'm too busy in the trenches. That celebration will surely come. In fact, God has promised us a banquet. But we're not there yet. Too many lives are still at stake. Lives are at stake from poverty and war and drugs and violence. Lives are at stake from avoidable traumas, children pulled from their mother's arms. Lives are at stake from casual tweets and the not-so-casual disregard for character as a necessary quality in those who decide the law of the land. Lives are at stake even in my own little office downstairs. So I'm not ready to celebrate. I'm more interested in gleaning what wisdom we can glean on how to live in the trenches well and faithfully. How to live for such a time as this. And so I come to this morning's scripture with two questions. My first question is, how did Esther, with all the chips stacked against her, an ethnic minority and a woman in ancient Persian society, Esther, who didn't even have the right to speak to her own husband, manage a complete reversal of a legal decree and change the course of history. It seems to me that she drew on three crucial ingredients, courage, faith, and cunning ingenuity. We know that Esther was afraid based on the fact that she initially told Mordecai that she couldn't help since anyone who went before the king without an invitation was put to death. Such fear does not negate her courage. In fact, without fear, there's no need for courage. Instead, as Ambrose Redmoon put it, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Behind her ultimate response, we see Esther's determination that the fate of her people has to be more important than her own fear of what may happen to her. She responds courageously, and Mordecai's cajoling does not detract from her courage one bit. Who among us doesn't need some word of encouragement to be our bravest selves? After all, that word courage is in the middle of the word encouragement. But not even Mordecai offers any suggestions on how she's supposed to solve the problem at hand. That's where faith and ingenuity come into the picture. 
not to mention the poise and bravado it takes to have all the men following her instructions. First, Esther prepares herself by drawing on her faith. She asks all the Jews in the city to fast for three days while she and her maids do the same. Fasting is traditionally tied to prayer and supplication, and we have to assume that Esther was doing a lot of both. Asking God to be with her, to protect her, to strengthen her, and to intervene through her actions to save the Jewish people. Then, knowing she might die, she puts on her royal robes and approaches the king. It might be her beauty that wins the king's favor, but it's her intelligence that wins the day. The king is prepared to offer her anything up to half of his kingdom. But she is cunningly strategic. She doesn't show her hand right away. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet where she gets them to lower their guard before unveiling Haman's plot against the Jewish people and asking the king to spare their lives. Then, since it was against Persian law for even the king to overturn his own decree, she comes up with a way to negotiate a new edict, and she herself is prepared and permitted to issue that edict through the king's secretaries. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see this kind of power and influence wielded by a woman. Perhaps, as Mordecai suggests, Esther was brought to royal dignity for such a time as this, uniquely equipped with the courage, faith, and ingenuity to save her people. Her gifts and the world's needs perfectly intersected. It's as if God planned it that way. Which brings me to my second, more important question. Where do your gifts and the world's needs intersect? What if you are here for such a time as this? There are so many needs in the world today. None of us are called to meet all the needs we encounter. Instead, we're called and equipped to play a unique role to bring certain gifts to meet certain needs. There are enough needs, enough causes, enough hungers for each of us to find our place, our calling, or as it's described in The Sound of Music, a dream that will need all the love you can give every day of your life for as long as you live. You may be thinking that you don't have special gifts, but Esther thought that too thought that she wasn't up to the challenge put before her. She probably couldn't have named her own gifts. She might not have known she had them until she needed them. She needed Mordecai to hold up a mirror to show her that her moment had come. And she needed to take a leap of faith in order to fully come into her own. So when your Mordecai shows up, when someone notices gifts in you that you may not see, when someone calls you to respond to a need in the world, listen with an open heart and an open mind. In this morning's Gospel reading, Jesus talks about coming into the moment for which he 
had been called and equipped. Like Esther, we get a hint of fear when Jesus says his soul is deeply troubled. We also get greater insight into how faith transforms fear. The prayer of faith isn't asking to be delivered from that hour, but for God's work to be accomplished through that hour. As Jesus said, a grain of wheat that stays safely in the bud stays just a grain. A grain that falls to the ground, gets in over its head, is buried in the mud and soaked by rain, that grain becomes sheaves of wheat to feed a multitude. Maybe it won't be that messy for you, your purpose, your hour. Though life experience suggests that those nice, neat callings are a little hard to come by. If yours is messy like mine, there's no need to panic. Move forward with faith and courage. Trust God and your own gifts, whether they're clear to you now with the certainty that my college roommate had, or whether they unfold slowly and often with more questions than answers like my own. When you find yourself in the trenches, alongside fear and doubt, keep Jesus' words in your heart. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, God will honor. With that faith in your heart, step with courage and ingenuity to the future that God has in store for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and join in our theme hymn number 578 in the red hymnal, God of Love and God of Power. 